Sunday. Um, we're glad you can join us today uh, for our last Sunday before Daylight Savings.
Hi, everyone. Welcome to Church in the Valley this morning. Um, we're so glad that you've joined us. My name is Jenna Fitzpatrick, and I serve on Kids Zone here at Church in the Valley. Um, if you're our guest this morning, we have a free gift for you. It's a book called How Good is Good Enough. So please grab one. It's on the guest resources table over there. You can grab it on your way out. Um, we'd love for everyone here to fill out a connection card. You can find it in your program or online at civalhambra.com slash Sunday. Um, if you're a regular here, please fill out whatever applies to you on the connection card. And if you're a first or second time guest, just fill out as much as you feel comfortable sharing. Um, you're welcome to give online or drop something in the offering bucket on your way out. Um, we'd also really appreciate it if you could return your pens um, after the service today. Um, we have uh, a couple announcements. First, Daylight Savings Time is coming up next week, March 13th. So please remember to turn your clocks back um, on Saturday night, March 12th. We also have a baptism overview coming up, and it's going to be on March 20th at 11.15 a.m. here at the Alhambra. So for those of you who are interested in being baptized on April 3rd and you'd like more information about the baptism, um, there'll be an overview for adults and one overview for kids being baptized. Um, so you can sign up for that on your connection card today if you'd like. Also, please save the date for our volunteer appreciation picnic. Um, Sunday mornings really could not happen without all the hard work of our incredible volunteers. So we'd like to say thank you and celebrate them with a volunteer appreciation picnic. And everyone is invited. We'd love for you all to come and celebrate our volunteers. It's going to be on Saturday, May 7th. Um, details like time and place are coming soon. Um, also, March Madness is coming up, so Josh Anchetta is going to host a March Madness Bracket Challenge. That's open to everyone at church. Um, so March Madness is an, is an annual college basketball tournament, and everyone around the nation tries to pick the winners of each game, and they create their bracket. Um, so you really don't need any college basketball knowledge to participate. In fact, sometimes I pick my bracket based on which mascot I think would beat the other mascot in a fight. So it's just lots of fun. If you're interested in, in being a part of the bracket challenge, you can let Josh know. Um, please do that before Friday, March 18th, and Josh can answer any questions you have. Josh, do you want to just raise your hand? So yeah, there's Josh. Sweet. Um, oh, and also there will be prizes for the winners. So there's another incentive for you. <laughs> um, once again, we're so glad that you're here with us today. Uh, let's continue in worship. Thank you. Thanks, Jenna. Whew, March Madness. Excited. <laughs> <laughs>
hear your voice We're hanging on every
that you are with us. You are here in your presence, Lord. We pray that you would speak through your servant, John, as he delivers a message that you have for us. And that is, as we'll hear today, um, that your spirit is upon us and that it is with us. And um, what great comfort that gives, what great excitement that gives, Lord. So we thank you for being present and near and the living God. And we ask these things in your name. Amen. Well, good morning, everybody. Thank you. How are you today? Good. All right. Happy Sunday. It's always a blessing to be able to share in worship and to share in fellowship together in the Lord. Just going to find my glasses here so I can read. There we go. Now, we've been on a series about life in the Spirit, talking about the Holy Spirit, what does it mean to, to live in and with the Spirit, to be filled with the Spirit. And this week, we're still, we're on a sort of a, a part within that series uh, that I began two weeks ago on praying for the Holy Spirit. So this is the second of a two-part message, I think it's two-part, unless we don't finish it today, on praying for the Holy Spirit within a broader look at life in the Spirit. So that's, that's what we're doing. And last time we talked about this, two weeks ago, we talked about a number of things, uh, the different terms that the Bible uses for receiving the Spirit and, and uh, how they all in, speak to different aspects or different emphases of the work of the Spirit. We talked about how praying for the Spirit is a, a, a significant aspect of church tradition for, th for hundreds and hundreds of years, how important it is to receive the Spirit, even more important than baptism in water, as important as that is, how the Spirit is the power of the new covenant, that which really empowers all that God promises to do in the new covenant. And how we should pray for the Spirit according to the Bible, as Jesus said in Luke eleven thirteen, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? And if Jesus said it, I suspect that that's, he means it, and that's what we should do. And so we talked about how praying for the Spirit, and that at the end of that session, a couple of weeks ago, we started to talk about how sometimes people receive the Spirit uh, through the laying on of hands. And that's one, as, one way to pray for the Spirit. It's not the only way. Uh, sometimes the people in the Bible receive the Spirit without the laying on of hands, uh, and sometimes with, but it seems to be a way uh, that, that happened. And so we talked about how the Samaritan believers in Acts 8 received the Spirit through the laying on of hands. We talked about how Paul in Acts 9 received the Spirit through the laying on of hands. And now we come to Acts 19. This is a group of disciples, uh, 12 disciples actually, in Ephesus, and who meet up with Paul. 
and it's a it's a rather interesting uh, passage in all sorts of ways, uh, but it's there is Paul evangelizing Ephesus, and he comes across some people who are already disciples. He says in verse one, he found some disciples, and then he says he said to them, "Did you did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed?" And they said, "No, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit." And he said, "Well." Into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling people to believe in the one who came after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. So here's a group of disciples and some people think that they maybe were just disciples of John, not disciples of Jesus. But when it just says, when Luke writes this, he says they're disciples. And if you go back into the book of Acts, how, well, how else does he use that word, disciples? They're always disciples of Christ. So these are people who have heard about Jesus, but they, they only know the baptism of John. And, and so they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And Paul laid his hands on them. And the Holy Spirit came upon them and they began speaking in, in tongues and prophesying. One of the interesting things about Luke's depiction of the work of the Spirit in Luke and Acts, and I mentioned this already, was that in, in Luke and Acts, when you receive the Spirit, you speak for God in some way. It, uh, it, if you like, the Spirit is expressed in your life through speech, uh, whether it's uh, prayer or praise or speaking in tongues or prophesying or preaching the gospel, uh, witnessing to Jesus in all the, in all the earth, something, uh, whether it's, these things happen and uh, it's expressed through, through speech. So laying on of hands, that's a funny old thing. What's this laying on of hands? What's, what is that thing they call the laying on of hands? It's, uh, you know, because in the Bible, actually, laying on of hands can have a couple of meanings. Sometimes when you lay hands on somebody, it doesn't mean you're praying for them. It means you're grabbing them. <laughs> you're, going to, you're going to arrest them or something. Uh, but why does God even do that? Why does God choose to impart the Holy Spirit through the laying on of hands of another believer? And that's a rather interesting thing. It's like Christian baptism. Uh, you know, in the first century, uh, there was a lot of people doing ritual washings. Uh, you know, Jews had a ritual washing whenever they went to the temple. And they would go and walk down into what they called the mikvah, the sort of ritual bath, and, uh, and then you know, immerse themselves and then come back up again on the other side of the staircase, which separated sort of to symbolize that uh, they were now clean, ritually clean before they went into the temple. And... Uh, so they did a lot of this washing, but they all, you did it to yourself. Christian baptism is interesting because you don't do it to yourself. It's someone does it to you. The same with praying for the Spirit. When someone lays hands on you to receive the Spirit, that's not some, you know, it's something someone else does to you, another believer. Same with Christian baptism. So there's all sorts of interesting symbolism going on there. But part of it is this, that when you receive the Spirit, and when you're baptized or when you receive the Spirit, you're not just, it's not just an individual experience between you and God. But you are receiving the Spirit as part of the body of Christ. That is, as part of the church of Jesus. This 
movement, this body, this family to which you now belong. That's why when you baptize, someone, a believer, baptizes you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Again, not because it's not simply an experience between you and God, but it is something uh, symbolizing how you're being incorporated into the body of Christ, into the church, and empowered by the Spirit that you share with all other believers. We notice, for example, in the Bible that sometimes people receive the Spirit like Paul did through Ananias through in an individual moment, but a lot of the time they received the Spirit in groups. That's what the day of Pentecost was, right? That's what happened in the house of Cornelius on Acts 10. That's what happened here in Acts 19. People received the Spirit in groups and in crowds as the Spirit was poured out upon people. Uh, and because the Spirit is the Spirit which fills not only individuals, but fills the church, fills the body of Christ. And the laying on of hands is an interesting symbolism, right? It's, a, it's like an impartation of the Spirit, that touch. Uh, and it's uh, one of those simple acts of symbolism, like being immersed in water for baptism, like kneeling when you pray or raising your hands when you worship, these kind of simple physical acts of symbolism in help engage our whole self in the, in the process. So, But some people receive the Spirit without the laying on of hands. We see in Acts 10, verses 44 to onwards, this is in the house of Cornelius. Well, Peter was even still saying these things. In other words, still preaching to this house full of Gentiles. The Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word, and the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter, that is, Jewish believers, were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles, for they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And they asked him to remain for some days. This was even without prayer or the laying on of hands. People, people, they were just hearing the word and, and they all received the Spirit. And an amazing event that spoke to the Jewish believers that now God, you know, that God was interested in Gentiles as well. And, and, uh, and they were speaking in tongues and praising the Lord. Again, it came out of their mouth, if, if you like. It expressed itself in their worship and in their, in, in their speaking in tongues, which is also a form of worship. Uh, there's another passage I have on the notes, which is in uh, Acts 4, and uh, I'm going to skip that one for now and, uh, and move on. So we're going to get, if you're running the, uh, the PowerPoint here, I'm going to get to point seven, all believers have the Spirit. So, this is important to recognize. When I'm talking about the need to pray for the Spirit, we're not, what we're not saying is that believers don't already have the Spirit. And we're not saying that. So, because it's very clear in the Bible that you can't even be a believer without the Holy Spirit work in your life, presence in your life. 
only believers receive the Spirit. In John 14, 16 to 18, we read this. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Jesus is talking to his disciples. He's saying, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. The world cannot receive the Spirit. The idea that some have that... Uh, that you know the spirit of god is in everybody that we that the, that somehow every human has a, has god in them in a little some way this is not a biblical idea uh, every every human is loved by god and every human being in some way lives before god that is because god is everywhere and god is watching but not every person has the spirit the world can receive the spirit because it neither sees him nor knows him you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you and then Jesus says I will not leave you as orphans I will come to you Jesus talking about him going away he's going to die he's going to be raised from the dead he's going to ascend and he's saying I'm going to send you the spirit I'm going and instead I will so he says, the Father will give you the Spirit. And he says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. So this tells us that when the Spirit comes into a person, that's how Jesus comes and lives within you. That's how Jesus comes to you. And in verse 23, which is not on our overhead, he goes on to say, talk about the Father and, and Jesus. He says, we will come to him. That is a person who is a believer, and make our home with them. That when the Spirit comes, that's how the Father and the Son come and live within you, come and make their home with you. This is the presence of God in the person and in the church through the Spirit. In John 7, verse 37 to 39, Jesus is at a feast in Jerusalem, and he's on that Last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Well, that's a fascinating metaphor, a picture of the Holy Spirit. He says, out of your innermost being, out of your belly, your heart will flow rivers of living water. Now, the, when Jesus talks about living water in the Gospel of John, he's using, even though, he's, even though John is written in Greek, Jesus is using a, a, a Hebrew idiom uh, that if you were... Uh, that if you were to read the Old Testament in its original Hebrew and you come across places where it talks about fresh or running water, uh, the, 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 the way they say it in Hebrew is living water. And, uh, and, so, uh, and so it just simply means, yeah, it, some of the sacrifices, for example, in the Old Testament, they would said, now, clean this, wash this in living water. In other words, fresh running water, as opposed to still water, you know, that's been stored somewhere. So fresh running water, not stagnant, not, you know, but, but fresh running water. That's living water. That's why uh, the woman at the well got a bit confused in John 4 when Jesus said, 
if you knew you know, who I was, you'd be asking me and I would give you living water. She said, oh, that's much better than having to come down here and, and, uh, and, and to the well, right? Because for her, what she's hearing is fresh running water up in the village rather than coming down to the well to, to have to carry water. But Jesus, of course, is making a play on the idea of water that's living, not just running and fresh, but alive. And so here in our passage, he says that fresh living water is going to come from your innermost being as you're filled with the Spirit. That's interesting in all sorts of other ways as well uh, because of the symbolism there. It's coming out from within. If we go back into the Old Testament, we think, where in the Old Testament do we see water flowing out from within something? Normally, you know, and, and so we think of two places. One is the Garden of Eden, from which four rivers, in the book of Genesis, the Garden of Eden was the source of four rivers that flowed out and watered the land. And, and the other is in, the, uh, is in Ezekiel, where Ezekiel has a vision of the temple and as the presence of God fills the temple, there's a river of water that comes out from the temple and out from the gates and spreads out to the nations. And so the picture here is of the presence of God filling believers and spreading and f- through them the presence of God going out like the, like the rivers from Eden and like the river from the temple in Ezekiel flowing out to the nations, taking the life of God into the world amen so listen if you do not have the spirit paul says you don't belong to christ in romans 8 8 and 9 those who are in the flesh cannot please god you however are not in the flesh but in the spirit if in fact the spirit of god dwells in you anyone who does not have the spirit of christ does not belong to him right all believers have been given the same spirit. 1 Corinthians 12, 13. We're in one spirit. We were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. 1 Corinthians 12, 13. This is important. In the gift of the spirit passage in 1 Corinthians 12, which we'll look at another time, the emphasis there is on how there's the variety of gifts, but it's always the one spirit. So, this is important for someone coming, for example, from a, 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 uh, a pagan background or a, a, a polytheistic background to understand that the spirit that you receive is not a different spirit from someone, another believer. It's the sa- same spirit, the one and the same spirit, the one and only God who comes to dwell in believers. And Paul says in Ephesians that when you believed, you were sealed with the spirit. Verse 13 and 14 of Ephesians 1, in him that is in Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, that's in Christ, was sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. What all that means is that when you believed, as you heard the gospel, the Spirit came into you and you'd sealed your salvation, if you like, and it, and it becomes the down payment or the seal or the deposit of all that God is, give, is going to give to you in, when Jesus returns is now 
all that life and all that hope and all that salvation is already given to us and sealed with the Spirit who guarantees the full inheritance when we come into it. What an incredible thing. So listen, it's very clear in the Bible that believers have the Spirit, only believers have the Spirit, and all believers have the Spirit, right? So when we're saying praying for the Spirit, we're not saying you don't have the Spirit already. But we are saying it's still important to pray for the Spirit. And it's in fact in the Bible that believers may repeatedly receive the Holy Spirit. Now, give you some examples from the Bible here. In Ephesians 1, we've just read in Ephesians 1, 13, 14, that, uh, that when you believed, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Immediately after he does this, Paul starts praying for them in Ephesians, same chapter, two verses later, and says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering in you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. This is not a spirit of wisdom as if there's another spirit which is a special spirit of wisdom, right? And then you need another spirit which is spirit of knowledge uh, and a spirit of life or something. No, this is the spirit right after telling them that when they believed they were sealed with the spirit, he then goes and prays for them to receive the spirit, that the Father would give them the spirit. And in this case, it's a spirit who's characterized by wisdom and revelation. So this is a prayer for the spirit right after telling them that they have the spirit. And in chapter three of the same letter, he prays for them again. Verse 14 to 16. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family on heaven and earth is named that in according to the riches of his glory he may grant you, you all, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your innermost being. Wow. There's two prayers for the spirit in Ephesians right after telling them that they already have the spirit. And then in, the, in chapter 5 of the same letter, after telling them they have the Spirit, praying for them twice to receive or be strengthened by the Spirit, in chapter 5 he then commands them to be filled with the Spirit. In chapter 5 verse 18, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. And that's a command. Now, it's a bit of an odd command in some ways, right? Because it's, well, anybody here a, an English teacher? Let's see, you've got English teachers here? No. Well, you might know what a passive verb is. A passive verb is when something is done to you rather than you do it, right? So if you fill your cup, that's active. If your cup is filled, that's passive. Here, it tells them, not fill with the Spirit. In other words, they're not to, it's not that you fill someone else. But he commands them, you be filled with the Spirit. Now, how do you command someone to do something that they can't do to themselves? Right? That has to happen to them. Well, that's, he, he does it. It just happens. And, of course, the implication is he's already given them two prayers for the Spirit before he tells them to be filled with the Spirit, the implication would be that's how you are filled with the Spirit, 
by prayer. Interesting what happens when you're filled with the Spirit. And by the way, when he says be filled with the Spirit, the verb here in the, in the original Greek text suggests the idea of, some, of a process, of something in process. In other words, it's not simply a one-time event, but something that is continual or repeated. So keep, keep on being filled with the Spirit is the idea. Because you need Jesus in your life, his presence and his power every day of your life. Amen. And so what is the result then of being filled with the Spirit in Ephesians 5? He says, be filled with the Spirit, and here now he gives you the results. And a bit similar to Luke, it's, it's, it comes out your mouth. He says, addressing one another, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, encouraging one each other. That's what we do in the, in the Sundays, right, and other times as well. Singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart, always and everything, for everything, giving thanks in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God the Father. When you're filled with the Spirit, it's meant to change your worship life. It's meant to be an, meant to be an outburst of worship and praise, of thanksgiving to God, of singing to the Lord with all your heart and speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. That's the edification of one another, building each other up as we filled with the Spirit. This is all, by the way, in the Greek, it's all part of the same sentence. Be filled filled with the Spirit, and then there are a series of what what in Greek we, we participles, right, which are dependent on being filled with the Spirit. Number one, speaking to one another. Number two, and three, singing and making melody. Number four, giving thanks. And number five, all still part of the same sentence in the Greek text, submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. And that is, these are the results of being filled with the Spirit. And then it says, so submitting to one another in the fear of Christ, wives to your husbands as to the Lord. That's all part of the same sentence in the Greek. In other words, when it tells wives to submit to their husbands here, it's all a result it is an aspect of mutual submission and fear of Christ, and it's the result of being filled with the Spirit. Is the way that we then relate, is affects the way we relate to one another. It affects our relationships to God, to one another, and even in the marriage. Praise the Lord. Now, In the book of Acts, Peter and others are repeatedly filled with the Spirit. For example, in Acts 2 and verse 4, the day of Pentecost, we read this two weeks ago, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. That's in Acts 2. In Acts 4, two chapters later, Peter's on trial before the Jewish high council, the Sanhedrin. Uh, he's on trial for preaching the gospel. And he says in verse chapter 4, verse 8, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders. And he starts speaking to the court. Now, after he is released from custody in Acts 4, he goes back to uh, his, his, uh, the other believers at, in Acts 4 and says, we've got to pray, right? Because when they, 
They arrested Peter and John for preaching the gospel and for healing a man who was sick. Uh, and, and so uh, who was lame there at the beautiful gate of the temple in Acts 3. And, but they, they released them, but they gave them all these horrible threats. This is what's going to happen for you if you, if you keep on preaching and, and doing these miracles and things. Uh, so stop it. You know, you can't do anything like that in the name of Jesus around here. So that's what happened. And so they went back. They were released, but they went back to the church and said, we've got to pray because they're threatening us for preaching and healing in the name of Jesus. And so they start to pray. And they said, Lord, did you hear their threats? Did you hear what they're saying? All these powers. And look what they did to Jesus. And they, yeah, they, they, this is what they, I'm going back now just a little bit to the text that we skipped over back in chapter 4. This is back in section 6. Verse 29 to 31. Now I said, Now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. They've just been told not to speak in the name of Jesus, and otherwise really nasty things will happen to them. You know, maybe if it was me, I might have said, Oh, man, obviously I'm not being culturally sensitive here. I've got to think of some more appropriate way to communicate in this environment. What's a way that's so that's inoffensive, that's, uh, that's uh, culturally acceptable, that's cozy and peaceful and won't get me into trouble? You know, I've got to re- refigure my evangelism strategy here. I can't go out preaching in the name of Jesus and healing people. That stuff's obviously going to cause too much trouble. What's the better way to do it? That's what we might be thinking. But they said... Lord, did you hear what they're threatening? (laughs) Let us continue to speak your word with all boldness. And the other said, there's two things they got into trouble for. One was preaching in the name of Jesus. The other was healing in the name of Jesus. And so the second prayer was, you know, or the prayer was, let us continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. More boldness to preach, more miracles. Just the things that got them into trouble. And when they prayed, verse 31, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, continued continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Praise the Lord. So, they weren't exactly praying for the Spirit. They were praying for, the, for, for boldness. What they got was the Holy Spirit, which gave them boldness. But notice, this is the same Peter who's been filled with the Spirit in Acts 2. He's filled with the Spirit before the court in Acts 4, and now he's filled with the Spirit again. He just keeps being filled with the Spirit and speaking the Word of God boldly and healing. And, and so what happens, right after that, what happens is that Look at, the, look at the power of being filled with the Spirit. Verse 32, I think we, we have this on the, on the... Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was, own, was his own, but every, they had everything in common. Just a wonderful effect of the pouring out of the Spirit. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Praise the Lord. So, listen, the power of the Spirit. Paul was repeatedly filled with the Holy Spirit. 
in Acts 9, verse 17, we, we talked about this two weeks ago. Brother Saul, Ananias says in Damascus, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And he laid hands on him. The same Saul, who was also called Paul, in Acts 13, verse 9, was filled with the Holy Spirit and looked intently at him. This was a, a man who was opposing uh, Paul's message before the Roman uh, consul in, uh, in Cyprus. And, uh, and so Paul is filled with the Spirit in Acts 9 and in Acts 13. It just happens that way. So we've got to accept it. So listen. Since we start with the Spirit, we should continue with the Spirit. That's what Paul says in Galatians 3. A lot of scripture in this message, but I hope it's getting into your heart as well as your mind. Let me ask you only this, Paul says in Galatians 3, 2 to 5. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun with the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Listen, you began your life in Christ by a movement of the Spirit. We don't leave that behind and then do the rest in our own power, amen? <laughs> we continue in the Spirit. Did you suffer or experience so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, still supplies Spirit to you and still works miracles among you, do so by, do so by works of the law, by hearing with faith? Continue the way we began, or as Paul says, as, as you receive Christ, so walk in him. So I'm saying here today that I think the Bible is very conclusive on this. We all, as believers, if you're a believer, have the Spirit. We all should pray for the Spirit. Now, to talk about praying for the Spirit is, in fact, to talk about prayer, about why we should pray for anything, right? What's the point of prayer? And, of course, why does, if God wants us to be filled with the Spirit, why should we pray for it? But, of course, that's asking the question, why we should pray for anything that God wants us to have? And because it's a relationship that he brings us into. It's a relationship. Now, it's not an equal relationship with God, Right? Your friendship with God is not an equal friendship. It's not a friendship of equals. He's in charge. You're not. He's the boss. You're not. He's the Lord. You're not. Right? Jesus says, you know, uh, if you keep my word, you know, you're my friends. Right? So uh, what does it mean to be a friend of Jesus? Obedience. <laughs> right? Obedience to Jesus. If you're not obeying Jesus, you're really not his friend. But listen, listen. The point of prayer is that you are a, a, a true person, that you're not a robot, you're not a zombie, you're not uh, a computer program, you're not an avatar in a, in a program being pushed around by somebody in a game. You are a real, authentic human and God wants your cooperation with him to be genuine, your love for him to be real, your relationship to him to be a true relationship. It's not a relationship of equals, but it's a true 
relationship where you have your own authenticity, not autonomy. You're not independent from him and you never should be. But it is a true relationship where you're an authentic person in that relationship. And therefore, he's not just going to push you around, but he wants you to, to respond to him in faith and to ask that you may receive. It keeps you dependent on him. Yes, it keeps you relying on him. Yes, it keeps you involved. And so that's how prayer works. You know, church history is full of people who were praying for the Spirit and seeing the power of God at work. And I, I do love to read about the history of revivals. And I mentioned John Wesley two weeks ago. Uh, I mentioned that, uh, that in 1738, uh, John Wesley in London was in a meeting and he was listening actually to... Uh, Martin Luther's preface to the book of Galatians being read out in this meeting. And remember, this is, uh, this is Wesley, who was, was an, a Church of England minister who'd already been to uh, America to, to preach the gospel among, uh, to, to in, in America and Georgia and um, to uh, uh, the, uh, the Native Americans as well as to the colonials. And uh, he didn't think he had a, it wasn't a very good experience for him. He, he sort of failed. It turned out it was because he was not yet converted. That would have been a, made a difference. And so, uh, although George Whitfield, who's one of his partners in ministry, writing afterwards was very complimentary about what, George, what Wesley's ministry in America had achieved, but Wesley, John Wesley himself wasn't too happy. And on the way home from America in this rather failed missionary attempt, he met some Moravian believers uh, and, uh, and he went over to visit them and got kind of inspired. And, and in this meeting in London, in Aldersgate, he, uh, it says that he felt his heart strangely warmed. He knew that he did trust Christ. He had this assurance of salvation. That's sin. May the 24th of 1738, but on, the, on January the 1st, or actually December 31st into January the 1st of the same year, the last day of, of, December, of, of December 1738, Wesley and other believers were in a prayer meeting in Fetter Lane in London, and they're having a prayer meeting to see in the new year. And it was, a, it was a love feast, a kind of a meal and a, a prayer time. And Wesley says this. There's about 60 believers. Charles Wesley was there, George Whitfield was there, and many others. About three in the morning, he says, as we were continuing instant in prayer, the power of God came mightily upon us insomuch that many cried out for exceeding joy. Many fell to the ground, and as soon as we recovered a little from that awe and amazement at the presence of his majesty, we broke out with one voice, we praise thee, O God, we acknowledge thee to be the Lord. This was really the beginning of what's called the, the first great awakening. This was really the moment uh, where the Spirit started to pour out in this incredible revival that reached England, uh, America, and many other countries, and resulted in... in uh, all sorts of people, thousands and millions of people coming to Christ. 
about six months later, Wesley writes in his journal about another meeting on June 16th. He says, in that hour we found God with us at the first, as at the first. Some fell prostrate on the ground. Others burst out as with one consent into loud praise and thanksgiving. They, this revival outpouring is, is characteristic of church history where God moves in by pouring out a spirit of, and reviving, awakening the church and that leading to widespread evangelism, to missions all over the world. George Whitfield, I mentioned him, Wesley's partner, in one of Wesley's partners in ministry in the First Great Awakening. This is what he wrote about those early meetings in London in Fetalane. He says, it was a Pentecostal season indeed. We're sort of alluding to Acts chapter 2. Sometimes whole nights were spent in prayer. Often we have been filled as with new wine. Often I have seen them overwhelmed with the divine presence and cry out, Will God indeed dwell with men upon earth? How dreadful is this place? This is no other than the house of God and the gate of heaven. Later that year, 17, on Christmas Day, 1739, Whitfield was, was writing about his ministry and he says, I cried mightily to the Lord in my secret devotions. And in the afternoon, he went out to ministry. He said, when I read prayers and preached, he, that is the Lord, was pleased to show that he had heard me. For I scarcely know when we have had a more visible manifestation of the, of the divine presence since our coming to America. So this is, you know, by the end of that year, he was, Whitfield was in America preaching the gospel. He says, the people were uncommonly attentive and most were melted into tears. That's the beginning of the Great Awakening, which spread. One of the people that was, key, that was key in the Great Awakening in America was a man called Jonathan Edwards. You might have heard of him. He's a, a famous American uh, theologian, philosopher, and, and preacher. And in, as part of this Great Awakening, he was a key revivalist and a key thinker and he wrote this, this, this short tract or little uh, book uh, that he was sending out to encourage people to pray for revival, to pray for the power of the Spirit. And this is the title of it, uh, as, as a complicated title as I used to do in those days. Uh, in 1747, he wrote this, uh, and he wanted to encourage people to pray. He wrote this book, and he called it An Humble Attempt to Promote Explicit Agreement and Visible Union of God's People in Extraordinary Prayer for the Revival of Religion and the Advancement of Christ's Kingdom on Earth Pursuant to Scripture Promises and Prophecies Concerning the Last Time. <sighs> so, he, in other words, let's get together and pray for revival. Let's get together for, and pray for the outpouring of the Spirit. And he based it on this passage from Zechariah 7 where it says, it, Thus says the Lord of hosts, it shall yet come to pass that there shall come people and the inhabitants of many cities and the inhabitants of one city shall go to another saying, Let's go speedily to pray before the Lord and to seek the Lord of hosts. I will also go. Yes, many people and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to pray before the Lord. And uh, And so... He says this, in the text, we have an account how this future glorious advancement of the church of God will be brought on or introduced by great multitudes in different towns and countries taking up a joint resolution.
resolution and coming to express and visible agreement that they will, by united and extraordinary prayer, seek to God that he would come and manifest himself and grant the tokens and fruits of his gracious presence. Now, what happened was that this call to prayer got picked up in Scotland. They read it in Scotland and uh, a number of ministers there and they said, well, not Wesley's writing. He hadn't written it yet, but he was he was taking his example. Wesley, uh, Wesley, Edwards had as his example the churches in Scotland who decided they should pray for revival. And this is what they were praying in Scotland. They were praying earnestly to him, that is to God, that he would appear in his glory and manifest his compassion to the world of mankind by an abundant effusion pouring out of his Holy Spirit on all the churches and the whole habitable earth to, to, to revive true religion and to deliver all nations. So that was the spirit of prayer in the Great Awakening. Now, later in the 18th century, Wesley's book, was then, uh, Edward's book, was taken back to Britain, and they said, oh yeah, we've got to pray for revival. And they started another movement of concerted prayer starting in the mid-1780s for revival, awakening, the pouring out of the Spirit and missions. And this led to what's called the Second Great Awakening, another great revival movement. Uh, that, and this, and for example, the Methodists, who were very strongly evangelical in those days in, in England, they went from 72,000 when John Wesley died in sort of late 1700s to 250,000 in a generation. They just multiplied. And it was in the great, in this second great awakening that the modern missions movement started. William Carey went out to India and a whole lot of modern missions started. This is the result of what happens when the church prays for the work of the Spirit, for the pouring out of the Spirit, for the gift of the Spirit. In other words, I'm saying here that when we're calling for the pouring out of the Spirit, it's not simply for yourself in your own personal life. It's for us as a church. It's for the church worldwide. We need to keep dependent on God, keep pouring, keep crying out to Him. Let's finish then. The Father, where does the Spirit come from? The scripture is very clear. The Father gives the Spirit. We saw that in Luke eleven thirteen. If you then are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Or in John 14, 5, 15 and 16. If you love me, you will keep my commandments and I will ask the Father and He will give you another helper to be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. But it's also Jesus who gives the Spirit. In Acts 2, 32 to 33, Peter's preaching on the day of Pentecost, and he says, This Jesus God raised up, and that we're all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he, that is Jesus, has poured out this, that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Or going back to the passage we started with last two weeks ago, Matthew 3.11, John the Baptist saying, I baptize you with water for repentance, but after he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He, that is Jesus, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. This is why, by the way, the 
the Christian creeds say that the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. It's the it's both the gift of the Spirit is the gift of the Father and the Son. And so when we receive the Spirit, we're actually having a Trinitarian event. We're having a, something where the Father and the Son give the Spirit, and through the Spirit, Father and Son come and live within us, empower us, strengthen us, and give us all that we need to live the life that Jesus has called you to. The Christian life is hard, but it's not too hard. And the reason it's not too hard is this. It, you are empowered by the Spirit. My friends, listen, we need, we really need, I need, and the church needs, and the world needs, the power of the Spirit to be filling us and overflowing, taking the good news into the nations of the world and into our places of work and our place into our families, into our networks. Let's pray. Just in your own heart and mind, just maybe speak to the Lord just softly, out loud perhaps. Just ask him today to fill you afresh with his Holy Spirit, to empower you, to baptize you, to strengthen you, to pour out upon you his spirit of holiness, his spirit of power and love. Spirit of truth. And if you're not a believer today, if you don't know yet, have if you've not yet submitted to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, then I invite you to do that right now. To say to Jesus that you want to turn away from your former life to come to him in faith to, to serve him as Lord to experience him as Savior and to live for him from now on in the power of the Spirit Father we stand today in great need of you of your Spirit we stand in need of your power your presence we thank you that all believers have the Spirit, and yet, Lord, you also command us to be filled with the Spirit. Father, in Jesus' name, pour out your Spirit upon us as a church, as individuals, and our families. Pour out your Spirit and fill us afresh. Lord, to empower us to take the gospel to the nation and the nations. Father, in Jesus' name, let your spirit come today and among us. Lord, Lord.
sing in the spirit right now. Just lift your voice, lift your hands, sing. For we know the truth. For we know the truth. Your truth has set us free. In your name alone, we have been released. You are
ever-present, you're our helper, you give us power, you give us strength, and so we pray, God, we pray that you would send your spirit upon us and fill us again, empower us again, help us to walk with your spirit, to walk in your spirit, Lord. We know that you are wanting to move, you know that you are going to do great things in this church, in this nation, in this land, in this world. So we pray that you would just strengthen us and empower us. Use us as your hands and your feet as you send us out. We love you. We adore you. We worship you. We ask for you and your presence above all else. In your name, we pray all these things. Amen. Thank you guys for coming. We'll see you guys next week.